Part five of Karl Marx an essay by Harold J. Lasky. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Five. Marx's personality is no easy one to dissect. There is no trace of the rebel in his inheritance, and his early education would have fitted him for any career rather than the one he chose. If he became the head and centre of the destructive forces of Europe, that was the inevitable outcome of the reactionary regime into which he was born, and he would doubtless have countered that description by insisting that destruction is the parent of creativeness. His work dealt with the historic foundations of the permanent source of revolution, and the only weapon, as he realised, for flesh that has mortified is the knife. The view that makes of him the compeer of Darwin, the discoverer of the universal law of economic evolution, has not a little truth in it, but it is less true than that which places him alongside of Rousseau and Carlyle as one of the greatest prophets of the human race. For it is essentially by the qualities of the prophet that he is distinguished. He was unmoved by oracles other than his own. Impatient of difference, as with Proudhon and Bakunin, contemptuous as his correspondence with Engels shows, of all who did not think exactly in his fashion, he never learned the essential art of colleagueship. He was too prone to regard a hostile view as proof of moral crime. He had not a little of that zest for priority he was so unwilling to recognise in the discoveries of others. He was rarely generous in his recognition of intellectual stimulus. With Marx, to enter a movement was to dominate it, and he was incapable of taking the second place. Hatred, wrote Mazzini of him, outweighs love in his heart, which is not right, even if the hatred may in itself have foundation. There is a penetrating truth in that criticism. Marx's absorption in the wrongs of the disinherited undoubtedly blinded him to the universality of human nature. He had brooded so long over the method of their redress that he became incapable of weighing the value of alternative channels. He never realised how partial and incomplete were the views upon which he based his conclusions, and vast and patient as were the researches he undertook, he was not always exact in his measurement of evidence. He is, in fact, a noble but not an attractive figure. That there was a Marx eminently lovable in himself, the testimony of friends makes certain, but it was not the Marx of public life. There is something unhealthy in the venom with which he assails early friends like Bruno Bauer, or not less ardent seekers after light like Proudhon. His accusations against Proudhon, even when the temptation to destroy is remembered, were singularly ungenerous. Learned, courageous, capable of profound sympathy with the mass of men, he was never able to grasp the secret of dealing with individuals. Much, doubtless, is to be pardoned to an exile who never enjoyed comfort, and had often risked his personal safety. But Mazzini was able to emerge from trials not less difficult, with a sweetness unembittered. Nor could Marx accustom himself to the necessary compromises of political life. One is tempted to feel that Marx confined his introspection to other men, and never attempted that sober examination of self, which is often the beginning of political wisdom. That effort, after all, is fundamental. The unstated assumptions of a thinker's personality are the more urgent because they do not appear in the printed word. Every great philosophic interpretation is at bottom a spiritual autobiography, 
and marx never realized how greatly his work is a palimpsest within which one can read the history of his personal experience it is significant for his books that his early radicalism should have proved a barrier to his university career it is significant also that he should have known the pains and penalties of exile nor is it irrelevant that after thirty years in london he was still at the end a german stranger testing facts and constructing theories in terms quite alien from the circumstances around him the impalpable penumbra of his thought never impressed him even while it remained the subconscious touchstone by which he judged the thought and acts of other men thus while he wrote with superb profundity about the material environment of men's lives he rarely penetrated into the inner substance of those lives with such tracts of experience religion for example as were alien from his own knowledge he could neither sympathize nor understand he wrote a philosophy which expresses in the mass the aspirations of man but it is not a philosophy like that of rousseau which with all its defects springs directly from their deepest emotions in a sense that is to say the seeming logic of his attitude is deceptive for it in part rests upon a failure to test his own assumptions and in part upon an abstract view of human nature with which the totality of facts is in direct contradiction marx's doctrines may be divided into five different parts which though they are brought into connection in his writings have in reality no necessary dependence upon each other their central economic position is a theory of value by which he endeavoured to explain the methods by which the workers are exploited under capitalism and as a corollary a view of the increasing concentration of capital from which he derived important consequences in his prophecy of the future historically it is an attempt to explain the growth of movements and institutions entirely in economic terms predominantly marx insists the antagonism of classes is the motive power which underlies the historic process and it is to the impulses which are at work in the satisfaction of economic demand that all changes are to be traced philosophically this view results in a purely materialistic view of human nature a view be it noted which has obvious and important connections with the general attitude of the benthamite school politically the doctrines of marx resolve themselves into a defence of revolution as the method by which the workers are to attain power and dictatorship as the method by which they so consolidate it as ultimately to secure a condition of general freedom upon marx's theory of value it is not necessary to spend much time it has not stood the test of criticism it is out of harmony with the facts and it is far from self-consistent it represents essentially a narrow interpretation of some loose sentences of ricardo the latter had argued with certain qualifications that the value of any commodity is to be measured by the quantity of labour which goes into its production marx however ignored the qualifications and the proof he offered of the thesis is essentially different from that of ricardo exchange value he argued is not the singular quality of the commodity in which it inheres exchange value is the quality which it possesses alike with all other qualities for which it can be exchanged since human labour is the only quality which all commodities possess in common human labour must be the measure of exchange value and be it noted by human labour is meant undifferentiated human labour it is a quantitative and not a qualitative equation it is a measure simply of effort in time 
and not of effort in result or quality of result. Labour is paid differently simply in relation to the different amount of labour congealed in any given commodity produced. That which will suffice to produce the necessaries of life for the labourer is therefore the price of labour power. Wages, as it clearly follows, are the value of the worker's necessaries of life, but the worker produces in a day more than suffices for his necessaries of life. If we assume that by working six hours each day, the worker can produce his necessaries, while his working day is eight hours long, then the value of what he produces is as eight hours is to six, that is to say, one-third greater. Marx termed this extra production surplus value, and he assumed that the capitalist, taking his surplus as his profit, robbed the worker of it. For by buying labour power at its market price, the capitalist at once grows rich and exploits his workers. And in any capitalistic society, especially where there is free competition, this is bound to be the case, from which it of course follows that only by the abolition of capitalism can we stop the exploitation of labour. It is unnecessary to dwell at any length upon the fallacies implicit in this analysis. As a matter of logic, Marx had no right to assume that the quality of labour is, other differences being subtracted, the common basis of measurement. Nor did he mention that in addition to labour, all commodities to have value must have this at least in common, that they satisfy some need. Utility, in other words, is a necessary factor in value. It would be impossible to produce aeroplanes except upon the assumption that some people wanted to fly in them. Nor can undifferentiated human labour be taken as a measure of value. It is an economic platitude that differences in wages are not merely due to differences in the effort in time of production. It costs no less to produce a bad carpenter than a good one, but the quality of a good carpenter's work has a value quite apart from cost as effort. It has the type of value which the economists call a quasi-rent, and this quasi-rent appears in the value in exchange of the product. Nor is this all. Wherever there is a type of production, the phenomena of which result in rent, the measurement of value is not the mean cost of production, but the marginal cost of production. Marx failed to note this limitation, with the result that he cannot understand the nature of rent, and was led into obvious contradictions. And he fails also to take any account of the fluctuating character of demand. He seems to have regarded demand as purely static, and falls, as a consequence, into all the difficulties which Bohm Barbeck and the Austrian school have emphasised. To say, moreover, with Marx, that the cost of a labourer is the socially necessary cost, the lowest cost, that is, at which he can be produced, is immediately to bring within purview tests of his hypothesis, which he entirely failed to apply. For if wages represent the cost of necessaries, the existence of a proletariat whose wages are above the bare cost of necessaries clearly invalidates the whole process. And in fact, the question of a wages level is an historical problem in which logical considerations do not play the whole part. Social conscience, for example, as with the trade boards, may insist upon a rate of wages historically above the socially necessary cost, and trade unions may, by the combined strength they represent, lead to the same result. If a state, even though it be a capitalistic state, chose to adopt a policy of a minimum basis of civilised life in which a wage standard was fixed, the iron law of wages, which Marx deduced from his theory of value, would immediately be obsolete. 
It must not be forgotten, moreover, that in the Marxian analysis, whatever does not appear as wages is always regarded as unearned profit. Of rent and interest, this is perhaps no unfair account, but it is outside the evidence of facts to argue that the task of directing business, the work of the entrepreneur, is not to count as labour and does not create value. Even when a suspicion of this impossibility dawned upon Marx, he dismissed the earnings of direction simply as cunning, and argued that all profits contain an element of surplus value, which differs from interest, wages and payment to the entrepreneur. But if profits are not a payment for work, then it should surely follow that the capitalist must take it also. Otherwise he is gifted with a quality of moderation with which Marx does not normally endow him. In such a general background, the Marxian theory of value seems clearly untenable, not less on theoretic grounds than from an analysis of the facts of business. Yet it is equally undeniable that Marx's view has obtained the assent of a whole class of society to its truth, and it is therefore worthwhile for a moment to inquire exactly what magic it possesses from which its strengthening hold is derived. That, it may be suggested, is simple enough. For the technical economist, the difference between profits and rent was fundamental. Men like Ricardo and Nassau Sr. saw a natural distinction in source of origin, which manufacturers like Bright embodied in the legitimate earnings of a hard-working mill-owner, whatever his wealth, and the illegitimate, because unearned income, of a landowning duke. They saw it the more clearly, when, as in the period of Marx's own maturity, they were struggling to free his business from the environment of a hostile squirearchy. But to the labourer, as Marx clearly saw, such a distinction was, for practical purposes, irrelevant. The world was divided for him into those who lived by wages and those who did not. Those who lived by wages were poor. Those who did not live by wages were rich. Assume, as Marx assumed, that the surplus theory of value is true, and the riches of those who do not live by wages are due to the poverty of those who do. The worker was able to see that he was poor. He saw also that he produced more than he could consume, and that his surplus production was divided among a relatively small class of rich and often idle men. A theory such as Marx's inevitably appealed to him as the natural explanation of his oppressed condition. He clung to it, not by virtue of any logical estimation of its theoretic adequacy, but because it summarised the most poignant experience he knew. The Marxian law of wages, moreover, will, from its very nature, win new adherents at every period of commercial depression. At any moment when there is a decline in the effective demand for commodities, or when the strength of trade union resistance is at a low ebb, the impact of capitalism upon the wage earner will closely resemble what Marx insisted is its normal relation, for few businessmen have imagination enough to realise that there are other ways to the rehabilitation of markets than the reduction of price by means of lower wages. Inevitably, therefore, the worker will move from the acceptance of surplus value to the philosophy which Marx constructed as its natural environment. The law of the concentration of capital stands upon firmer ground. The greater the degree of complexity involved in the productive process, argues Marx, the fewer will be the number of persons controlling its instruments. Everything contributes to the intensification of this process. New means of communication are established, the problems of which are beyond the solution of the small capitalist. 
important mechanical inventions are beyond his financial means territorial consolidation destroys the local market in which he was once a privileged person the process indeed is neither immediate nor direct it took the bourgeoisie three centuries to expropriate the artisan and create the proletariat but once the process had begun the development was inexorable overproduction created a new army of reserve workers the substitution of pasture for arable farming concentrated a large rural population in the towns the economies of large-scale production forced hitherto independent producers into the ranks of wage earners the capitalistic system moves from a national to an international character its market becomes the world its nature involves increasing centralization until the control of the forces of production reaches a point where its further development in private hands is impossible for alongside the development of accumulation is the increase of the proletariat the workers cannot any longer endure the misery that is involved in the capitalist regime they have learned discipline from the training that is necessitated by the mechanism of the process of which they are the victims the knell of capitalist private property then sounds the expropriators are expropriated to the great capitalist there succeeds the state which is captured by the workers for their own purpose the result of capitalism is in fact its own destruction it produces in hegelian fashion its own antithesis the very condition of its growth is that it should involve the laws which imply its inevitable ruin we need not accept the conclusion of the arguments who insist on the important truth that it contains the wastage of competition in large-scale enterprise is a commonplace of modern business and the trust or cartel is the characteristic symptom of industrial development there are indeed certain important limitations to the simplicity of the marxian view the growth of joint stock enterprise distributes over a wider circle the number of those interested in the receipt of profits even while it limits those who actually control the industrial process itself while there are many minor industries of which photography and the repair of motor cars are examples in which the tendency is to the increase of small firms rather than to the development of great ones but parallel with this evolution there's gone a very striking centralization of credit which concentrates in continuously fewer hands the finances of the community agriculture indeed despite the large-scale farming of western america and the development of agrarian cooperation remains persistently individualist in temper yet on the balance of inquiry it is impossible to deny the emergence of an increasingly collectivist spirit and its reaction upon industry is the more important because it leads without question to the demand by the workers of certain nominal standards from the state which are increasingly insisted upon as the condition of business enterprise nor is that all it becomes obvious that certain industries are from their very nature too vital in their results to be left to the chaotic possibilities of private effort if the expropriators are not actually expropriated there comes as with mines and railways a demand for some form of nationalization and just as the investigations of the thirties and forties produced the factory acts so it is legitimate to argue that the results of inquiries like the coal commission of nineteen nineteen and the dockers inquiry of nineteen twenty are likely to put a term to the continuance of private enterprise capitalism in fact 
prepares monopolies which immediately affect the community towards some form of state administration. So regarded, of course, this view does not involve the theory of revolution which Marx regarded as the inevitable corollary of capitalistic concentration. It need not, indeed, involve a transition towards a socialistic state at all. All that would seem to be implied would be the removal of industries essential to the welfare of the community from the danger of exploitation by private interests. The logic of a necessary conflict resultant upon the concentration of capital is derived by Marx from other sources. It is the corollary of his interpretation of history. That, broadly speaking, may be summarised by saying that all the phenomena of history are the result of economic motives. To them are traceable legal and social institutions not less than the religion and philosophy of each age. The system of production is the ultimate factor, in short, by which the mass of human relationships is determined. Protestantism, Engels wrote, is essentially a bourgeois religion. So too, in a feudal period, we should expect the legislation to reflect not general ideas of right, but those ideas of right which are compatible with the maintenance of feudalism. But ideas change, and in Marx's view, the source of change is to be discovered in the transformation of one economic system into another. A new external world produces new internal ideas. Let women enter industry in the mass, and, as Mr. Bertrand Russell has pointed out, ideas which not even the logic of Plato and Stuart Mill could make obvious, become accepted without question. Two hundred years ago, it was unthinkable that a peer should go into the city. Today, finance has enmeshed political life within its fold, so that no company prospectus is complete until the peerage is represented there. No one can doubt the very large measure of truth in this outlook. No one can write the history of English Puritanism, of the struggle for toleration, or of the American Revolution, without making the defence of an economic incentive fundamental to their explanation. But it is equally clear that the insistence upon an economic background as the whole explanation is radically false. No economic motive can explain the suicidal nationalism of the Balkans. The war of 1914 may have been largely due to conflicting commercial imperialisms, but there was also a competition of national ideas which was at no point economic. Historically, too, the part played by religion in the determination of social outlook was, until at least the peace of Westphalia, as important as that played by material conditions. Luther represents something more than a protest against the financial exactions of Rome, the impulses of men, in fact, are never referable to any single source. The love of power, herd instinct, rivalry, the desire of display, all these are hardly less vital than the acquisitiveness which explains the strength of material environment. Engels, indeed, seems to have realised the narrowness of the orthodox view, for in the later years of his life he insisted that the dominant part ascribed by Marx to the economic motive was due mainly to its neglect by his opponents, and there was not always time, place and opportunity to do justice to the other considerations. But with Marx, the economic motive is not only final, it is final in a particular way. The only durable source of faction, says Madison, is property, and for Marx, the emergence of private property in history is the beginning of the class struggle. 
immediately society can be divided into those who do and those who do not possess private property a power is released which explains the changes of history for the class which possesses property moulds the civilization of that society in the service of its own interests it controls the government it makes the laws it builds the social institutions of the commonwealth in accordance with its own desires slave and free man master and servant these have been the eternal antitheses of history with the advent of capitalism the struggle is at once simplified and made more intense thenceforward the final stage of the class war the struggle between bourgeoisie and proletariat emerges and just as each social order of the past has secreted within its womb the germ of its successor as for example feudalism produced capitalism so does the latter contain within itself the germ of its communist successor capitalism said marx produces its own gravedigger the conflict in his view was an inevitable and a bitter one and it was bound to result in the victory of the proletariat the bourgeoisie he wrote in the communist manifesto is incapable of continuing in power because it is incapable of securing a bare subsistence to its slaves and the result is a growing sense of revolt in the worker who ultimately by a revolutionary act assumes the reins of power in a large sense it is obvious that the substance of this interpretation is accurate the fact of the class struggle as marx himself pointed out is a commonplace of historians and economists and it may be added that to deny its importance is to make history unintelligible where marx parted company with his predecessors was in the deductions he drew from his perception of its significance for whereas with men like madison and guizot the fact of conflict produced a sense of horror at its implications and a search for a technique that its dangers might be obviated with marx the conflict was fundamental and both its method and ultimate outcome were to him alike obvious whereas with madison there is an ever-present uncertainty whether a just victory may not suffer betrayal or a wrong object be pursued with marx the process is predetermined and save for a brief period in eighteen seventy no hesitation seems to have crossed his mind the method by which the proletariat was to secure power lies at the very root of marx's doctrine and it has been in our own day perhaps the main source of his influence the method was revolution and a dictatorship of iron rigour would consolidate the new system until the period of transition had been effectively bridged marx did not blind himself to what all this implied the history of capitalism was the history of a relentless defence of each phase of the rights of property they were maintained by methods at each point unconnected with ethical demands if the conflict was extreme as in the days of june eighteen forty eight or with the commune of paris the last ounce of misery was wrung from its opponents that capitalism might be secure a period of comparative quiescence may produce the concession of social reform but this is merely deception once a really vital point is touched by the workers demands they are met by armed resistance that means of course that only by conscious violent intervention can communism be realized the proletariat must seize a propitious moment for the revolution but until it comes they must do all in their power to disturb the existing regime even if minor successes have been achieved by the aid of the liberal-minded bourgeoisie 
from the first hour of victory the workers must level their distrust against their former allies they must create a working-class organization of their own workers committees local workers councils to oppose proletarian institutions and their influence to those of the middle-class state the communists must arm the proletariat and do all they can to cut down the army of the state as the chief weapon of defence possessed by the bourgeoisie where the workers are in the militia they must form within it a secret organization to obtain its control they must form their own independent if hidden military force and acquire arms by every method influential democrats to whose word the working class seems to respond must be discredited the old social order in fact must be attacked at every point communists have two functions only to prepare for the revolution and to consolidate it successfully when it has been prepared they must think of themselves not as realizing an ideal but only as setting free the elements of a new society concealed within the womb of the old the period of consolidation moreover must be a period of iron dictatorship marx had no illusions about the possibility of a democratic governance in such an hour the ideals of freedom were impossible to maintain until the ground so conquered had been made secure revolution provokes counter-revolution and a victorious proletariat must be on its guard against reaction revolution in fact demands of the revolutionary class that it secure its purpose by every method at its disposal it has neither time nor opportunity for compassion or remorse its business is to terrorize its opponents into acquiescence it must disarm antagonism by execution imprisonment forced labor control of the press for as it cannot allow any effort at the violent overthrow of what it has established so must it stamp out such criticism as might be the prelude to further attack revolution is war and war is founded upon terror the methods of capitalism must be used for the extinction of capitalism for as capitalism has made of life itself the cheapest of commodities there need be no repining at its sacrifice and the result in any case is worth the cost since it destroys the possibility of future sale it would have been a wanton betrayal of trust said marx of the paris commune to observe the traditional forms of liberalism the end in fact is too great to be nice about the means employed nor can we expect that a peaceful revolution is possible while marx had certain doubts of england on the whole he was certain that a violent struggle was inevitable the workers might capture parliament at the polls but political power of that kind is in any case a shadow and were it used for an assault upon property it would inevitably provoke an armed resistance marx indeed went further and was openly contemptuous of democracy it was a bourgeois invention unrelated to the real and used only to deceive the people again and again the proletariat is betrayed and throughout marx's writings there is the assumption that reliance must be placed upon a class-conscious minority for in his view there is no place in history for the majority principle the record of states is the clash between determined minorities contending for the seat of power to introduce considerations of consent to wait on in the belief that the obvious rightness of communist doctrine will ultimately persuade men to its acceptance is entirely to ignore reality the mass of men will always acquiesce in or be indifferent to whatever solutions are afforded 
communists must proceed upon the assumption that nothing matters save the enforcement of their will upon the end this revolution is to serve the forms its purpose will adopt marx has written but little obviously with justice on his side for speculation in distant historical futures is the worst form of gambling it was with the destruction of capitalism and the period of transition therefrom that he was mainly concerned a new productive system was bound to involve new institutions which no man could foresee that the communist maxim from each according to his powers to each according to his wants would become operative was of course obvious to him the performance would be measured in terms of labour time a possibly inconsistent hypothesis he took for granted but he was always emphatic that the future must settle itself he insisted that the measure of distribution would be necessarily unequal in the period of transition you may as he saw destroy by catastrophe but creation is not an immediate and spontaneous process so that he nowhere set limits to the duration of this intermediate period it was necessary to wait until the habits engendered by a new productive system created a psychology in which the dogma of equality superseded the bourgeois hypothesis of individual rights the main thing was the destruction of a regime in which class distinction made possible the servitude of the many it was possible to have confidence in an order in which the whole force of social effort was deliberately placed at the disposal of the common welfare End of part five.